Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Straight after Crime Watch, I was told that the News of the World were offering assistance to those suspected of the murder of Daniel Morgan. Untold. The Daniel Morgan murder. Ten years ago, the Morgan family finally discovered a police officer they could trust. Detective Chief Superintendent Dave Cook. Sometimes he said, I feel that we're only scratching the surface of the corruption here, you know. I'm Peter Jukes and I'll be exploring how the fifth Daniel Morgan murder inquiry faced unexpected threats, not only from the suspects, but Rupert Murdoch's media empire. They were trying to undermine me, undermine the investigation into the murder of Daniel Morgan. It's as simple as that. If you think you know this story, you haven't heard anything yet. We're closing in on the modern day now. And this penultimate podcast covers the years 2006 to 2008 and the fifth Daniel Morgan murder investigation. Remember what happened to the fourth? That had been undermined by the news of the world and had failed to meet the bar of sufficient evidence as set out by the Crown Prosecution Service for charging. But we had hints from his wife Jackie Hames that the lead investigator, Detective Chief Superintendent Dave Cook, was not going to let it drop. And there were sown the seeds of the fifth and final murder investigation that began in the spring of 2006. But before we get there, let's just catch up with some of our lead figures in the early years of the new millennium. Probably the most famous and prominent character in this story, Rebecca Brooks, had moved from the news of the world to the sun within days of being confronted by Dave Cook over her journalist tried to subvert the fourth murder investigation. As for Brooks's knowledge of the dark arts practiced by recent fillery at Southern Investigations, well, The Guardian had published two major pieces about this, written by Graham McLagan and naming Marinchak in 2002. In 2003, appearing at a select committee hearing in Parliament, accompanied by her successor editor Andy Coulson, Brooks was quizzed by Labour MP Chris Bryant about whether she'd ever paid police. Can I not just ask whether they ever pay the police? Sorry? Just the one element of whether you ever pay the police for information. Yeah. We have paid the police um, for information in the past and it's been... And will you do it in the future? It 
depends we op- on... We operate within the code and within the law, and if there's a clear public interest, then, we're, then in the, same, so the same holds for, for private detectives, for subterfuge, for video bags, whatever you want to talk about. It's illegal it's, for police it's, officers it's, to receive within, payments. No, 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 we don't. I just said within the law. There is no law that allows newspapers to pay police officers for stories. Piers Morgan famously said that Brooks had dropped the tabloid baton by revealing this trade in paying police in 2003. And by this time, the use of private detectives had also become an issue. With the arrest of another private detective and Rebecca Brooks's former head of news, Greg Miskew, would be questioned by the police. Nothing came of it. And indeed, from 1999 to 2006, I can track seven police inquiries into alleged illegal activity by News of the World, none of which went anywhere. For Scotland Yard, Rupert Murdoch's News International Publishing Empire was akin to a kind of Bermuda Triangle, where investigations went missing without trace. What about the other senior figure, former Commander Ray Adams? He had left the Met under something of a shadow, before working for another Murdoch company, NDS. He'd been interviewed over his role in the Stephen Lawrence murder investigation in 1997, and in 2002, he hit another scandal. As European head of security for Murdoch's satellite smart card company, NDS, he was named in several lawsuits in the US. The TV company, Canal Plus, and other companies alleged that Adams and NDS had hacked their satellite smart cards and then helped to flood the market with cheap clones, thus undermining the revenue stream of the competitors to Murdoch's other satellite companies like Sky. Material from Adams's computer would also show that NDS had a dedicated fund to pay police officers. What of Reese himself? He served five years of a seven-year sentence for perverting the course of justice. And Derek Haslam, still working undercover as an informant, visited him regularly in prison. Strange to say, in Derek's account, Reese seemed completely at home. I always, always tell people, the only miserable people you see in prison are the visitors. Everybody else is smiling, yeah. If anything, he went into overdrive there, because all of a sudden, he's like a bee in a honey pot, really, because Everything's happening around him. There's new criminals. He's acting, oh, I know someone can sort your case out. I know someone that can uh, advise you on this. So he's getting more and more work. According to Derek, Reese was unrepentant and had grand plans for his release, working on scams related to renewable energy and, most importantly, raving on to Fillory about the potency of email hacking and how interested the British press would be in this. What of Sidney Fillory, his former business partner? He was still active in 2002, as we have seen, tipping off Marinchak at News of the World over the fourth murder inquiry and organizing the surveillance and hacking of Cook and his wife, Jackie Hames. The author of Untouchables, Laurie Flynn, remembers visiting Reese with his co-author, Michael Gillard, in the company of Sid Fillory. Michael and I went to visit Jonathan Rees in prison with Sidney Fillory. He drove us down in his new, newly acquired little Lexus car with Michael in the back and me in the front and Sid's big hands on the wheel. And I remember thinking, yeah, they, they're big enough to kill someone. And maybe the Toby Jug, jocular, likeable-ish scumbag 
image fell away. Intuitively, I knew that there was another side to this man, just from looking at him. Other witnesses say that Alex Marinchak from News of the World was another regular visitor to Reese in prison. Meanwhile, Sidney Fillory was back in the frame in 2002. While he was placed under lifestyle surveillance, detectives noticed Fillory's strange rendezvous in public toilets and during a raid impounded his computer. On it, they found images of child sexual abuse. Fillory pleaded guilty to 13 counts of making indecent images of children in October 2003, but was only given a suspended sentence. Well, actually, he pled guilty, which closed the door on all the other matters. And we now know that uh, the Met actively resisted analysing the financial material on his computer. And that is not merely reckless negligence. It's a cover-up. Most extraordinarily, the Department of Professional Standards never searched Fillory's computer for any evidence over the Daniel Morgan murder, press collusion or police corruption. When Dave Cook's team finally looked properly again seven years later, they found a wealth of other incriminating information. Searches of the hard drives revealed a continuing association with news of the world. The paper came up with one of the greatest numbers of hits, 106 instances. The name of its senior executive, Alex Marinchak, appears 79 times. In one document, Southern Investigations appears to be reporting back to the News of the World executive on the results of a burglary, a sortie into the address of the woman concerning Ascot. Because on Fillory's computer and on the office computers would be extensive financial information that would tell us a very great deal about whose customers uh, they were dealing with, which newspapers they were dealing with. The timeline on the payments would tell us which stories they were dealing with. And that would be an inordinately interesting and important piece of work, particularly in the light of the fact that uh, a major allegation is that uh, Daniel was trying to sell a story about corrupt police officers. So uh, it came as a terrible surprised to me when the police who have access to all this information refuse to access this information and even more extraordinary is Fillory's continued access to high-level Met intelligence he seems to have the duty states of four top officers involved in the previous murder investigation into his firm including Bob Quick there is also a letter from Reese to Fillory claiming he has received covert transcripts involving an informant, a potentially life-threatening breach of police security. Witness protection is at the cornerstone of the British justice system, and Fillory seems to be able to breach this with impunity. As we'll see, worse is to come. Meanwhile, what about Alistair and the family after the failure of the fourth murder inquiry? With all police and criminal routes to justice blocked, what else could they do? After Abelard won and the decision from the CPS, my first reaction was just rage, you know, after going through all of this for so long and just not enough evidence, because I knew that this was because of what had happened before. So I had long discussions with Raju, and we decided that we were going to go for a judicial inquiry. And 
Raju prepared a submission for the Home Secretary and that was sent in and we got a very relatively speedy response. We also wanted a meeting with the Home Secretary and David Blunkett wouldn't speak to us uh, and eventually we got a no from Hazel Blears who was the Minister for Policing. Then there was an adjournment debate in the House of Commons. My mother's MP, Roger Williams, got an adjournment debate in the House of Commons about it, uh, and at which um, Hazel Blears offered to see us. We went to see her in, I think it was October 2004, and had a very unsatisfactory meeting with her, uh, where she was telling us what, what a good job the Met were doing on clearing up corruption, and I, I nearly walked out of the meeting at that point. Stymied by New Labour's Home Office, Alistair and Kirstine took a different route. With their lawyers' help, they lobbied the members of the newly formed London Assembly and its police monitoring body, the Metropolitan Police Authority, as Raju explains. We've put the Home Secretary on notice that we're not going to have any option but to commence judicial review proceedings yet again to require a public inquiry. Because yeah. after that meeting with Hazel Blears, the reply comes saying, fuck off, basically. So we're about to launch the proceedings early in 2005 when Alistair, who's now by then been communicating with Len Duval at the Metropolitan Police Authority, is invited by Len Duval to come and brief him. There are very few heroes in this story. Len Duval, Jeanette Arnold and the MPA as a whole fit into that very small group of heroes. Len was the first person who said, look Alistair, you've brought this to us. There's obviously some problems here, and it's our responsibility to look into it. Never before has anyone ever admitted that they had a responsibility or a duty to at least see what was going on, and I'll be forever grateful for Len's role in this. The most outstanding thing about the MPA was that they took us seriously. Finally, and I, I can't describe the sense of relief after all those years, nearly 20 years, that at last somebody was listening. David Zinzan and David Cook were the first senior officers to acknowledge, if you like, to listen to the family. Len Duval was the first politician with any authority to listen to this family. Dave Cook and David Zinzan were the senior investigating officers on the fourth murder inquiry. The family, you know, hand in hand with the report being handed to them, they were invited to a meeting for that handover. And at that meeting in the Metropolitan Police Authority offices, John Yates and David Cook were present. And I think it was uh, John Yates who began the conversation. And he said, there's been an important new lead. He said, I can't tell you anything about it at this stage but we want to reopen the investigation and we want Dave Cook to lead the investigation because he lives and breathes this case. David Cook was very much in charge now, very keen to engage with the family and keep the family informed. Isabel was by then in her late 70s and obviously desperate for this all to be over and for her, success meant convictions. So I could see that she was desperately wanting to buy into what John Yates was saying. And he was 
very bullish and optimistic that this could be the golden thread that they had been looking for. But infuriatingly, he would not tell us anything about what this witness was saying, who he was. We weren't expecting to be told a name. Obviously, that was sensitive and his life was potentially in danger. But he wouldn't give us any information. And afterwards, Len was furious with him. He couldn't believe we hadn't been told more. What they couldn't be told was that the police had done a lot of intelligence gathering in the background. In March 2004, one of Reese's former brothers-in-law, Gary Vian, had been arrested for drugs importation and in July 2005 sentenced to 14 years in prison. Meanwhile, Dave Cook, tasked with writing a report for the Metropolitan Police Authority, had been approached by a supergrass with confessional evidence about Glenn Vian and the Daniel Morgan murder. And this would be the fifth investigation into the murder. And I remember coming out of that meeting and Isabel asking me then, are they just doing this to keep us silent? But here's the most shocking thing about Abelard II, the fifth murder investigation. Almost as soon as it was started, it was undermined yet again by the murder suspects and news of the world. The decision to launch Abelard II took place at a top-level secret meeting early in April 2006 within the inner sanctum around the new Met Commissioner, Ian Blair, who had replaced John Stevens the year before. By this point, Reese was out of prison, and amazingly, despite his record, he was working for the news of the world again, this time under the editorship of Andy Coulson, Invoices from the time show him targeting the footballer Gary Lineker, the Deputy Prime Minister John Prescott and Kate Middleton, who was just then dating the heir to the throne Prince William. Almost immediately the decision to launch Abelard II had been taken and the information was leaked to the suspects. According to intelligence reports, Rees confirmed a league from the Commissioner's inner sanctum with Alex Marinchak. Rees claimed that Marinchak had double-checked this with the former Met Commissioner, Sir John Stevens, who was now a regular columnist on the Sunday tabloid. Stevens has denied this as rubbish. But Reese and Marinchak were already derailing things without anyone's help. Reports reached the police, claiming Marinchak was trying to sell stories about Jackie Hames's private life during the summer of 2006. The Cook children were shocked to discover a man with a balaclava in the garden of the family home. And just as intrusive was Reese's newly discovered interest in email hacking. We now know that Ian Hurst, the investigator and former Army intelligence officer we heard talking to Brian Madigan in episode 3, was targeted by an e-blaster Trojan horse software virus and material passed on to Maranchang at the Dublin Office of News of the World. Various people associated with the murder investigation, Alistair Morgan, Dave Cook and Derek Haslam, found their computers running slowly at this time. That same e-blaster Trojan software infected Derek Haslam's computer and exposed him as an undercover informant sending back reports on recent fillery to the Met. In great personal danger and his role compromised, Haslam was hurriedly pulled from the job and given extra protection, though nothing was done to charge or arrest the suspects involved in the email hacking. Finally, 
In November 2006, Derek met Dave Cook for the first time and spent several days being debriefed about his seven-year undercover role. I was told, right, we want you to read all through these statements and this other stuff and some intelligence reports. And just going to these statements. Oh, that's not... I said, what's the matter? I said, this statement might... See, that's not even my signature. He said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'll tell my lot then. At lunchtime, you can tell Mr Cook. And I'll tell my lot at lunchtime. So when I met them, I came I said, oh, you look a bit down in the mouth. Said, so would you. I said, you've been asked to go through statements. It probably, nobody, someone probably thought you'd never see again in your ever. And to find out someone's forged your signature and all the statements were made statements reported to be by you that weren't. And, my, and I said, what's and I said, oh, I've just been shown statements that nobody ever thought I'd see. See, they're purported to be made by me that aren't. So I said, they don't seem too bothered in there. What do you, what do you think we should do? I suppose it's conspiracy for vertical course of justice. And that'd be a can of worms, wouldn't it? Yeah, sort of thing. Just to be clear, looking over his old statements going back to the late 1980s, Derek found that they had been tampered with. The writing and vernacular wasn't his own, and in some cases, the signature wasn't even his. This would require a level of corruption and cover-up beyond the scope of just Sidney Fillory. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Worth noting, just by the way, in August 2006, Glenn Mulcair and Clive Goodman, the royal correspondent for News of the World, were arrested for phone hacking, hacking the voicemails of the royal family. Operation Carrioted, as this first limited inquiry into phone hacking was called, warned Brooks about the range of the victims, but was clearly an insufficient investigation. Now, what of the fifth murder inquiry? Whether compromised or not, the main source of information for Cook was a series of four protected witnesses, or supergrasses. The protected witnesses came forward completely independently. None of them knew each other, which was a very important factor. But the outcome was that they were all telling pretty much the same story. 
you know, obviously there are minor deviations and things like that, but they didn't know each other and they were all telling different parts of the same story. We're going to code these protective witnesses PW1, PW2, PW3, etc. The first, PW1, who'd given Cook the information to start a new inquiry, had intelligence on the Vian brothers. The second, PW2, as Kirstein explains, had evidence on Sid Fillery. PW2 was crucial because he is talking about hardcore corruption and he brings Fillery right into centre frame. He changes everything. He is also incredible. One of the reasons he was so incredible is he walks off the street. He comes through an article in the Sun. So he's read an article in the Sun, he contacts the journalist. But what is amazing is that he has no identifiable reason or motivation for coming forward. Most of these witnesses are dirty criminals. He is a dirty criminal as well, but there appear to be no gain in this for him. He, as part of the cleansing process protected witnesses have to go through, which is admitting all their crimes, and he admitted a vast number of hugely serious crimes, of which he ended up serving okay, a, a relatively short prison sentence because it was discounted because he was giving evidence. But he had to serve a prison sentence. He also lost a huge amount of money because he had to say... Yeah, he had that, to hand over his criminal... Uh, He handed over uh, £80,000 in criminal, in money that he had uh, earned through criminality. And the police told us that the crimes he was admitting to, they didn't even know had happened. The reason he came forward, he said, was that one of the suspects had threatened his girlfriend, that if he spoke up, they would kill her. He came forward and said that he had been asked to carry out the murder by one of the suspects. And he, he said he knew Daniel, he'd met him, and he didn't want to do the murder. But, interestingly, and this is an interesting aspect of the evidence, he says that on the night of the murder, he was invited round to the Golden Lion with another guy, uh, ostensibly to discuss a lorry hijacking. And his take on that, which seems to me absolutely realistic, is they knew that he knew who was going to kill Daniel because he'd been asked uh, himself to do the job and that they brought him round to the pub just to incriminate him. What he said was that later on he had met Fillory and that Fillory had said to him that if he said anything he would finish up in exactly the same way as Daniel did. PW2, he gave a picture of a web of corruption that no one had thought about before. Again, it involved drug importation, but accompanied by gun running, rooted through the Irish Republic. What PW2 also does is give the alternative motive. So going away from Belmont into serious, organised criminal corruption. And he talks about big drugs running and gun running from Ireland that the suspects and police officers were allegedly involved in. And crucially, from our point of view, he places Fillory in the centre of all that. So for the first time, rather than Fillory always being seen as on the fringes, maybe, perhaps, he puts him centre stage. This story has so many threads and not all tied together, but this one does. Go back 
to Daniel's rebuilt classic Austin Healey car. We heard about that seven podcasts ago in episode one. By coincidence, yet another witness came forward because of another article in the Sun newspaper, written with permission by Mike Sullivan, a contact of Dave Cook's, about the rediscovery of Daniel's lost car. The reconstructed Austin Healey provided Alistair with one of his last fond memories of his brother as Daniel roared around the streets of South London looking like Toad of Toad Hall. And in 2006, it suddenly reappeared again. Well, Daniel's car had been stored in a garage belonging to one of the suspects, or the mother of one of the suspects. And when Iris wanted the car back after the murder, she was told that this particular person had cleared out her garage and had just given the car to some gypsies to take it away. And I mean, the car, Daniel told me that in 1987, before he died, he told me that that car was worth about £6,000 then in 1987. And the idea that she would just hand over a, a, a vehicle of that value to a, a, some gypsies is absurd. The, the Sun article revealed that the car had been found and that it was in the possession of a former police officer in Kent. Now, PW2 had partly responded to the police appeals for more information because of previous threats from the suspects. The third protective witness came forward for similar reasons. Another witness came forward whom the police had been speaking to for a very long time because they believed this witness had crucial evidence. And the witness refused to cooperate until this witness was beaten up and became so frightened that the witness decided to go into the witness protection program out of fear. This witness put one of the suspects at the scene of the crime and also implicated an Irish individual called Irish Tom as being the linchpin in the drugs distribution network. Which, of course, fitted with PW2's evidence. PW3 put the getaway driver at the scene of the crime and gave details about his role. Then a fourth protective witness came forward. PW4 was a man who had worked at Southern Investigations after the murder and he alleged that he had been in the office when one of the suspects had come into the office and demanded his share of the money for murdering Daniel. So, having studied the mosaic of over 20 years of fragmentary evidence, but now with four supergrasses to glue it all together with confessions, statements, motivations and a picture of the broader conspiracy, Dave Cook was ready to pounce. And in November 2008, over 21 years after Daniel's murder, five suspects were arrested. That was incredible. We knew when they were going to happen and it was <laughs> exhilarating. We thought, finally, we've got Daniel's killers, you know, amazing. Were they not phoning us like every 10, 15 minutes or almost felt like that, updating us where they were, who'd been arrested, what had happened, who'd said what, not that Oh, yeah, said yeah, anything. and it was coming out on the news. A person has been arrested, age so-and-so has been arrested for the murder of Daniel Morgan. And then two hours later, two men, two other men have been arrested in connection with the murder of Daniel Morgan. And, they, and so it went on until five people had been arrested. 
The arraignment was extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. The five suspects were in the dock in this glass cage, sitting there. It was the sense of seeing them behind the glass cage that struck me. Yeah, it was a sense of seeing them caged, if you like, that was so gratifying. And then afterwards, they were taken out to a a G4S van, a big G4S van, and the police drove us behind the van all the way along the embankment. We followed the van, and I was thinking, wow, they're sitting in this cage, in little cages in this van. And, I mean, that felt really good. After all these years, it looked like the Morgan family were finally about to get justice for Daniel. But as ever in this story things are never quite that simple. We unexpectedly got called into a meeting at Tintagel House and that's not the way things normally happen. So you spent a week in trepidation that something really awful had happened. And when we got in there, I think it was just us and Dave Cook. And it started, you know, I write notes of every meeting and it started in 2000 and then it stops. And I write, Dave Cook, asked for the first time ever that I don't take notes. And this point you think, oh my God, this really is serious. Something dreadful is going to happen. During this pre-trial phase of Abelard II, Glenn Vian discovered the bug in his garden. The Met had gone to the length of buying the house next door for their surveillance. The police thought they'd been compromised by a leak and some intensive investigations led to a very embarrassing discovery. And... Dave Cook is so embarrassed, not something he is known for. And that's when he told us that Gary's stepson is a police officer. The son of of the suspect in one of the most notorious murders in London was a police officer. And Dave Cook is obviously mortified. It was very embarrassing for the police. And my sister was absolutely infuriated by it because she's been in the army and she knows all about security checks. And and she was thinking, how on earth can something like this happen? I was just looking at you, looking at Raju, and thinking, does anyone else feel this? But I just kind of wanted to laugh. As it turned out, Gary's stepson, Dean Vian, was not the source of the leak about the surveillance. So everything was back on track. So come back next week for the final podcast in this series of Untold, the Daniel Morgan murder, and prepare for the unexpected as the scandal around news of the world goes global. Episode 9 was supported by Malcolm Knight. Produced by Peter Jukes and Devia Mir. Soundtrack by Shemeli Mir, a Flame Flower Duende production. Wet Slippery Floor by the Levingtons. It was a wet, slippery floor, but I'd spotted it, oh yes, I saw. It was a dry patch by the door, but I'd spotted it, oh yes, I saw. But then I was on my way back. Should have spotted it, I thought I saw. I fell head over heels when I saw you. I fell head over heels. She was a vision dressed. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, listen on the ACAST app, or visit untoldmurder.com.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.